everybody, this is Kevin Shinnick's clone, and you're listening to Amazing Spider Talk. Kevin Shinnick was not cool enough to be on Amazing Spider Talk. Welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Chinacchio, the editor of the Chasing Amazing blog. Thanks for joining us for our newest special episode of Amazing Spider Talk that we like to call Spider Talk and their amazing friends. In these episodes, Mark and I talk to industry professionals of all makes and models about their role in the Spider-Man universe. With Firestar and Iceman. <laughs> Of no, course. actually, don't forget episode, about them. No, no, we can't forget about them. But actually, in this episode, we'll first be talking to Kevin Shinnick, who is known for writing the Superior Carnage miniseries and the most recent batch of issues of Su- Superior Spider-Man Team Up number nine through twelve. Then we'll be talking to the dear friend of our show and the creator or co-creator of our iconic new logo, Ron Friends, uh, about his return to Spider-Man in the Superior Spider-Man Team Up number eleven and twelve. If you guys want to skip to a specific section or interview, just use the chapter selection arrows on your player. Also, if you hear this sound, please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. I also want to give a shout-out to our new listeners from Stitcher, a community our show just joined. Hopefully this will allow us to reach even more fans of the Spider-Man universe. Well, Mark, let's get right to it and listen to our interview with Kevin Shinnick on the Superior Spider-Man team-up issues number 9 through 12 and Superior Carnage. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Iceman and Firestar. Okay, Dan. Well, we got a special guest with us today. Uh, this is uh, someone who actually has a very multifaceted entertainment career uh, that you know extends to television and screenwriting and, and film. And um, he brought back the hypno hustler in the world of Spider-Man, which uh, we will forever be thankful for. And he is—he uh, did the scripts for the last four uh, issues of Superior Spider-Man Team Up. Uh, we have Kevin Shinnick with us. Kevin, how you doing? Thanks for joining. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I, you know, Kevin, I, I guess, you know, the first question, you know, I mentioned in the intro there about your being multifaceted. So, I mean, what's it been like for you to transition from um, screenwriting to, to comic book writing? I, I mean, you know, we've heard some people say they're, they're kind of similar, but what, what, do you, what do you, how have you seen it? You know, it's funny. If I look at my career, it has all the focus of an eight year old. Because those were the interests I had when I was eight, and now I still have them. So I just jump around to things that I really enjoy doing. And I've just always had a philosophy of if it interests me, I'll try anything once, and I'll always go with the door that opens. So, um, so yeah, as a result, I look back and I, you know, screenwriting, and I, I actually, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but um, long before Julie Taymor did her Spider Man on Broadway, I did the first ever feature length stage ad- adaptation of Spider Man. At Radio City Music Hall. 
Awesome. And that was such a blast for me. And, and, and how many injuries were in that show? You know what? One. <laughs> <laughs> and we did it for about $68 million cheaper. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a blast and it was, it was such a, a high-class production and, and it toured the country for like you know 40 cities and stuff. And it, it was just – you know, one of the reasons when I was doing that, I always wanted to – you know, I always wanted to write Spider-Man comics. When I, when I was growing up, he was my number one guy. T- to be fair – my number one guy was Spider-Man, and then after him, it was a lot of DC, but my number one guy was always Spider-Man. So um, when this opportunity came to uh, write and direct this uh, stage adaptation, I jumped at it. And while doing it, I just kept saying, oh, one day I'd love to you know, just do it in the comic books for real. I say for real. It was this you know, multi-million dollar production at Radio City Music Hall. But for me, it wasn't real until I actually got to do it in the comics, you know? <laughs> So then, what was it like for you to see see your work in a comic book for the first time? Was that that was avenging Spider Man? Well, what the issue? Fir- the first uh, comic book I did was a Batman comic book. I okay. did. Uh, I was asked to contribute a story to the Batman eighty page giant, and I think it was twenty eleven. I think, and I did a story with Mister Freeze, and and, and again, I, I'm just so so fortunate because. As I said to you, Spider-Man was number one. After that was DC, but number two was Batman. So right out of the gate, my first comic I got to do was Batman. And then um, after that, I did uh, Joker's Asylum 2 for uh, for DC as well, and I was focusing on Clayface. And then I met um, Steve Wacker, who was then the senior editor over at Marvel at Comic-Con. And he um, he told me he, he and his family were big fans of uh, my show Mad. And we just hit it off, and you know, he said, "Oh, you're gonna have to write, a, you know, Spider-Man comic for me one day." And I said, "Don't tease." I said, yeah. "Unless you mean it." And he's like, "I do mean it." And so that's how it took off. And they and he gave me Avenging Spider-Man to do. Do you do you feel like you know with the the changing face of like the people who are writing comics these days, it almost. Um, you know, pays more to be in like show business or entertainment to get into writing comics. <laughs> oh, you know. This day and age, it's so funny because I came out to California. I didn't, I didn't move here 10 years ago or more. Actually, it's creeping up on me. When I first came out in the late 90s, I – because I'm also an actor as well. And when I met with agents, I'd say, hey, I'm an actor and a writer. And back then they were like, well, which is it? You can't do both. <laughs> and it's so funny because we were just ahead of the time. Now you have to do both practically. And it's the same thing across the board in entertainment is, you know, I think you say I've got multiple hats that I do, but I think it, a lot of people do. And in this climate, you know, uh, I think that's just what, what people do. They, they go with their interests and it, it does go across different forms of medium. So, yeah, I think if I mean, look at Chris uh, Yost, you know, he goes from writing comics and he's now he's writing Thor. It, it just makes sense, you know, that that these people would be the people you go to for these type of stories. Does it have to be that way? Absolutely not. In fact, you know, a lot of times an outside perspective of someone outside the entertainment industry may even have a better take on something. But to me, it should you should be a fan of comics if you're going to write comics. And I mean, on that note, uh, you know, Kevin, you mentioned that Spider-Man was your number one. I mean, did you have you have some favorite stories or moments or characters or anything that, you know, when you finally got that opportunity to write write him that you wanted to kind of capture? Yeah, I mean, I grew up. You know that that special—I forget the number of it—that that special Spider-Man uh, one about the, the Harry's drug addiction stays in my oh, mind. Right. 
Yeah. You know, and a lot of the covers really stay in my mind. You know, him fighting the you know Tarantula and and all these great guys and all these great covers. And I was one of the few people, and I say this with tongue in cheek because it went on way too long. But I, for a while, was really enjoying Clonage. You know, mostly because I couldn't believe how long they were going on with that. Like, like I was like, of course they're gonna go back and it will be Peter and he'll be the real guy, not Ben. But they went on for so long that I was like, (laughs) wow, they are really digging their heels in here. You know, so uh, from from I don't know what aspect I'm looking at it from an editorial aspect, but I really (laughs) part of that I was really into the idea that like, holy crap, have we been reading the wrong guy all these years? You know, that's a Real perversion. I know. It really is. It really is. I don't say that often because people are like, what? You enjoyed clonage? But Are we going to see that in some upcoming issues? <laughs> well, you know, I tried to put a little bit of it in uh, in this last issue when uh, when Ock is flashing back to um, to all the things that he did and, uh, and Norman did to screw with uh, Spider-Man. There's one panel that, you know, has Ben Riley in it. And I thought it's a little nod to, you know, that time and that era. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole Octo Goblin thing that was thrown in there, that's a total 90s-ism. I could have totally <laughs> seen that in, in, in mid-90s Marvel. Exactly. And, you know, Ron has this great reputation for always happening to draw characters not in their normal costumes, you know, whether it was the black Spider-Man outfit or, or, you know, all this stuff. So I thought, let's go even crazier or just give him a goblin, octo-goblin outfit that no one's ever seen before. And he <laughs> took, it, took it and ran. What, what about that sequence, the kind of like buddy sequence, uh, you know, uh, between the goblin and, and the, the Dr. Octopus? Yeah. <laughs> it was really a, a, a fun sequence. Where did that come from for you? You know, I just try and put my – no matter what I'm writing, I just put, try and put myself in the mind of these villains – most of the villains, because I find them just, you know, they're all so haphazard. Even the most villainous one, like Norman Osborn, who's, you know, just so feared. You know, they, they put their guard down occasionally, and I just wanted to capture some of that. And, you know, I try to delve into that no matter how hated they are or how evil they're trying to be, at the end of the day, there's a reason for all that. And sometimes if they can find a little camaraderie or a buddy at one point, it's like, hey, let's just chill out. That's why I said to Ron, like, let's just have them. There's even that panel where I said, I want them sitting across a quaint little dinette table, almost like uh, from that from Citizen Kane, where he sits across a little from his from his newlywed wife, where they're just having a quaint little breakfast. <laughs> I said, I just I just like the idea. They're just having a good time and enjoying one another's company. It's, it's totally unique. <laughs> Well, I figured, and I and I loved the idea of uh, Norman wanting to try on Otto's glasses because yeah. no matter who you are, especially when you're a kid, if someone's got glasses, you're like, "Hey, let me try those on," you know. <laughs> and, and that doesn't go away when you get older, you know. You're still like, "Those are cool glasses. Let me try those on." <laughs> how, how does one pitch a hypno hustler story? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's funny is. And I find this across the board, whether it's it's you know movies or television or comics. A lot of times, as much as we complain about notes and limitations, they always make uh, the story better. And I, you know, what's funny is working in comic books. One of the things you don't realize is unless you're one of the the guys who you know are, are leading the main storyline or when you're in main books, a lot is like jumping on board in a soap opera. 
you have these grandiose ideas and they're like, sounds great. Oh, but wait, you can't use him. You can't use him. He's tied up. He's going to die. We don't want to show him. We can't use him. And it's like, oh, all these ideas I had, you know, who, who am I left with? And they said, well, go find somebody. And I had remembered and had to go back and, and find out that I, I wasn't imagining the hypno hustler. And uh, when I saw him, I thought, you know, not only is he a great person to go back to, but he, he really um, he related and fueled the story I was going with. Because that whole story for Avenging Spider-Man was kind of like, you know, it, it could have just, you know, in, in some ways it could have been Mysterio. But I find it so much cooler or uh, different that it's the hypno hustler. And again, you know, I have fun working with these ragtag, like, C-list villains sometimes who are just trying to make a name for themselves, you know. So uh, I was very excited when I said, please, please tell me I can use the Hypno Hustler. <laughs> and, uh, and Steve, who was the editor of the time, said, oh, my God, I'm so excited you, you, you unearthed him. Yeah, totally used him. So and, that's and, how that came about. And you totally made an impact there. I had done a, a, a column eh, maybe about a year ago where I was ranking like the, the 10 worst villains from the Bronze Age, like or just kind of like craziest. And I put Hypno Hustler in the list and I had people like, what are you talking about? He was great in that story with Deadpool and Spider-Man. I'm like, OK, OK, I'm sorry. I, 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 I bow down. <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. So and then I had- speaking of like limitations, um, when when it comes to like doing these kind of retro stories like, like yeah. the ones you just did, like you know almost, you're almost doing some retroactive continuity stuff. Yeah. Like, what are the limitations about going back and changing the past? Like, do they give you copious notes? Like, no, you can't alter this particular thing as well. They are very particular, and, and this is no secret, but about timelines, you know, and and you can't, of course, you can't undo something. That has been done. I mean, other people have, but I guess on a, on a larger level, they've decided, you know, ahead of time they can do that. But um, with this particular storyline, you know, that I wanted Norman and Otto to have some, you know, something go bad between them. And when I was doing the research, and of course, you know, I've been a big fan of all these guys for a long time, I had remembered that his fiance, and, and actually back then, it's so funny because when I went and, uh, and found that issue, you know, it's it's a little heavy-handed because she does get AIDS, you know, and it was done during that time. And I wanted to be sensitive about the betrayal of that. But at the same token, it seemed like a perfect thing that had never been uh, – or fleshed out more. You know what I mean? Back then, it may, may have been a, a special issue, you know, to talk about the current times and say, hey, look, even the characters in this comic book are affected with this disease. But – I thought, well, let's go back and figure out really how did she get that and, you know, and all this stuff. And I thought I could utilize that. So I wasn't really going back and changing history as much as I was letting the, the, uh, the reader in on a little information they may not have known if they had read that issue all those years ago. It's very clever. Well, yeah. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> and, and, and just in general, the whole the whole idea for the flashback stories. I mean, because this, these were so uh, different from all the previous, you know, Avenging and then Superior Spider-Man team up uh, yeah. issues. So, who, where, yeah. where where did this idea come from? Well, you know, everything's kind of coming to a head, or or was the time we were discussing this storyline. And Ellie was the editor on this one, and she's like, you know, you can you could do standalone stories, you know, but again, kind of like a soap opera. You don't want to rock the boat too much or have too much happening because, you know, we joke, but like in the movies, like you go see Iron Man 3, at this point you're like, why didn't they just call the Avengers, you know? Yeah. So it's like, I don't know how many 
other stories I wanted to do at that particular moment in time because I thought, well, he's going to be focused on this Goblin Nation thing. So there's just so much I can do in the current timeline. And then Ellie said, well, you, you're free to go in the past if you want to. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, but that being said, you know, I wanted the flashback to resonate in the current timeline. And then I started thinking and, I, you know, and fleshing it out with Ellie and stuff. And I pitched to the whole, you know, science versus soul crushing uh, platforms for these villains. You know, Norman's concept on how to really be a true villain as opposed to Otto's concept on it. And she loved the idea. So she said, yeah, go to town with this. Um, and, and like I said before, what I loved about this was it's a separate story in the past years ago, but it resonates today. And the impact really is only come to full fruition right at the end of this storyline, this current storyline. Yeah. And, you know, it's, we, you know, after reading the issue, it, it kind of, it really does function as a coda for the entire superior error. I mean, did you know that kind of, as you I, were writing it, that it was going to function as that? <laughs> I, you know, I knew I, I, I was good enough to be able to work with Dan uh, to know where he was headed and how he was going to resolve certain things. And I said, all right, so I don't want to step on any toes, and I didn't want to uh, veer too far from the actual storyline of what he was going for. So I – you know, the first issue is a stand – not a standalone. It's part one, but I mean it stands alone as separate from its, the current storyline. But I thought if the second one can be almost like a companion piece, um, then that's what I would like it to do. That's what I did with uh, issues nine and ten. Now, sadly – Something got screwed up a little bit with the delivery dates, and as a result, my issue, which I think is 10, where he discovers that the goblins behind that came out after uh, Dan's issue of Superior Spider-Man, where he already knows it's the goblin. So that was a little disappointing on my part because I was kind of like, oh, it would have been – if it at least came out the same week, it would have been good because – I read, I, you know, I honestly try not to read reviews because, you know, I, I'm doing this as a fan. I'm doing this, I'm doing the best job I can. So, you know, like it or not, there it is. And I thought, <laughs> you know, it, it hurts when they don't like it. And so it's like, well, like I can't go back and redo it. And I did the best I could. So I'll leave it at that. But I did one or two came to my attention where they were like, I like the story, but we already knew this. And I was like, yes, but a week earlier you wouldn't have, you know. Yeah. But uh, I, bummer. I still thought it was a good issue that worked as a companion piece. And that was kind of what I was going for when they asked me to take over Superior Spider-Man team-up. Uh, Chris did a great job with the previous issues, but they were kind of standalone stories at times. And I thought, you know, if I'm reading this, I want it to kind of dovetail into the main story as, as much as it can. And so if I can have a, a big impact, and if, and Dan was so great to, to say, yeah, let him discover that it's the goblin in your issue. And I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. So, you know, I tried to do the best I could on that end. Was there was there any talk of of these last two issues, the the flashback issues, of maybe even moving up before uh, the end of Goblin Nation? Because that was the other thing I was talking to to you know Ardan about this, and I was saying, you know, 
there were certain reveals in this that I feel would have added a little more oomph and context to some of the some of the things we got in in the last few issues of Superior, and it was like, you know, maybe we had some of that information. I know that you didn't; you, they couldn't spoil everything, like how Peter yeah. was going to come back, but right. it just 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 the, the, how Otto and and Norman were, you know, defined by each other. I mean, so was there any talk of like, oh, maybe do some of this earlier or do some of this later, or was it always kind of meant to be the there? End? You know, honestly, there wasn't talk about it, and at some at certain points, the release date is a mystery to me as much as to anybody else. So I knew going in that most likely Dan's story was going to have to unwind first, and knowing that because if I, you know, not not to give anything away if you haven't read Twelve, but you know, there are elements there that I'm just kind of bringing people up to speed with what's happened already in. Uh, at least I think it was 30 of Superior Spider-Man. And if you had read mine first, maybe some of that wouldn't have made sense. You know what I mean? So I didn't want to jump the gun. And not knowing exactly where this was going to, uh, you know, uh, not premiere, but come out, um, I wanted to err on the side of, uh, of caution. I like reading these two issues with the idea. It starts with a flashback and ends with, like, Peter in control. Like, that Ock lost because he was too busy daydreaming about his past. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. That's a great way to look at it. You know? Uh, what's funny is I, one of the things I was going to end, and then it just wound up not working out that way, is in, uh, I guess it's 11, he starts by staring uh, into the eyes of Norman. And that's the portal that takes him to the flashback. And I want to come out of that staring at the eyes of Norman. Um, but, you know, he's gone and I would have to be on paper then, you know, if it was like, have you seen this man or something like that? And it didn't carry – once I saw how like Dan's was unfolding and, and how mine was unfolding, it didn't uh, didn't hold up my mind. It wasn't as uh, have big of an impact. So I, I went elsewhere. But I did like the idea when I talked to Ellie about it of like – Somewhere in this flashback, the narration switches because since Peter's been in Otto's mind and vice versa for so long, you know, they're both – this is a flashback for both of them now. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a nice switch at the end there and hopefully not too confusing <laughs> for people. Well, I actually felt that – I actually felt it came across very cinematically, which Good. I mean I don't know if that tied into your, your other – you know, your other trades. But like that was kind of – it felt very like – you know, here, you know, especially the, with the, the the Marco Cicchetto image at the end of him just kind of swinging yeah. off, and you know, you know, like here's here's the fade to black, or you know, here's you know, totally, you know, I, pull I, the plug, I, it's I done. Can, I try and do that as often as I can. I think that's how I I see things visually, and I try and treat it all kind of like movies in the sense that, and I don't think this holds up in twelve, but as many as I can, I love a good cold open. You know, maybe a page or two of something and then, in my mind, credits. You know what I mean? Uh, so even if it's a little mini cliffhanger for the first page and then it goes off, um, I think I did that in, in, in 9 and 10. But um, if I cannot have the title page be the first page, I love to do that. I really enjoyed how you mixed the two artists together for the two-page layouts. Yeah. I've, I've rarely seen that done in comics, but, you know, is that just you sending notes that you want that and getting them to work together? Yeah, you know, and, and keep in mind, I cannot say enough about these guys. They, you know, Marco is fantastic. Ron, I mean, this is just a dream come true to do all this. And I knew that I wanted um, Marco to do have that last splash page, you know, sending it out. We're starting fresh. This is going to be his little amazing bit. Um, 
And then when I got to it in the writing, I thought, you know what, we're, we're it's important to tie in the past and the present. And I thought, well, we can't really do that if I stick with one artist because we've already established that Ron is the guy from the past and Marco is the guy in the current. So I wrote the splat, uh, the, uh, the double page spread, but then I said to them in the note in the script, you know, I I leave little of the imagination in the script, and I I it's practically a letter to these guys, and I said, like, you know, hey guys, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, Ron, this is your half of this double page spread. Marco, this is yours. And then I think. You know, Mar- Mar- when Marco was done, he sent his in and said, like, Ron, this is what I'm thinking. Here's a rough sketch. If, you know, maybe you can match these lines. And then Ron just knocked his part of the uh, his ball out of the park. So it was all great. It worked out as you saw, you know. The other thing about it is Ron does so many uh, – I mean, they're, they're Marco too. But in this particular issue, since it was mostly Ron, I love Ron's splash pages. Oh, yeah. And so what I wanted to do – there's a lot of them in 12 and I almost wanted it to be like Ron's portfolio. You know what I mean? <laughs> when I was writing this, I was constantly like, Ron, these are the images I'm picturing, but do it like you do so well. Because I said, I loved what you did in 11. And so, so they're all, if you go back and look, there are a lot of splash pages for that very reason that I just wanted to see Ron do what he does really great. He sent us the pencils and they were really gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, Yeah. But again, I, I, I've been very blessed to work with some great artists in the short time that I've had working in comics. But these two guys were just wonderful, really wonderful. How about Sal Buscema? Did you get to talk to him at all? You know, I didn't get to talk to Sal, but, you know, they go tag team Ron and Sal. So I, I felt like, you know, I was I was communicating to both of them. But uh, sadly, it was just not sadly, but it was just Ron who I was emailing with. Um, hey Dan, do you have any other questions on Team Up, or um, can I, I? I'm curious about Superior, Superior Carnage. I guess you are too, uh, Mark. Y- yeah, yeah, <laughs> we we have our little notes <laughs> in front of us. No, uh, th- here's here's the thing, Kevin. So I, I I don't know what what feedback you received on Superior Carnage, but you, I mean Dan and I are you know kind of open to the fact that we're not we're not huge Carnage people. We kind of feel right. the character has been played out and does the right. same thing over and over. And <laughs> that's but how we. My- yeah, and I say what we really liked was you did something very, very different with the character when you did the Superior Carnage mini. So, I mean, so you seem to be kind of answering that. So, was, was that your intent to kind of move away from the same old, same old with Carnage? It was because you know I've read Carnage for as long as it's been around, and and no disrespect to anybody that came before or who will come after. That's what Carnage does. It, it's in his name, you know. But you're right. There was a lot of this issue starting with him breaking out of jail, and now he's you know, and, and he's just causing carnage. You know, and after a while, it's kind of it, it felt a little one note to me. Um, like I said, you, I try not to read reviews, but you know, you can't escape them, especially this day and age with Twitter and all these things. And what I found funny was there are people out there, I mean, diehard fans who only want him to be Cletus. Yeah, you know, and so I remember like people, you know. They were. I was happy they were reading every issue, but they were like, "Oh, I'm not happy about this." Or, "Oh man, this stinks." <laughs> and then um, I remember when the fifth and final issue came out, uh, one of these diehard fans who had been the lambasting me the entire time wrote, 
oh, you did it. You're awesome. I love you. I didn't like one through four, but five was awesome. And I thought, <laughs> well, yeah, but you can't get to five without one through four. You know what I mean? It's like, so I understand that people are loyal to these characters, and, and I am loyal. I try to be loyal to them, but I don't think there's anything wrong with giving them a change of pace. That's what I've said so much about uh, Dan's take on Superior Spider-Man. You know, it was a brilliant way to do not another reboot and not something, you know, that you've got to learn new laws and things like that. It, as a writer and as a reader, I thought it was refreshing, you know. Um, and are, are we happy we're going back to Peter? Yeah, I'm happy about that too. But for a year or so, it was fun to write and read this hero who's kind of a dick. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so getting back to Superior Carnage, uh, you know, I – Again, I, I, I write things that I want to read as a fan, and I was a little tired of where it had been going. And the funny thing is, uh, at that time, again, it was still Wacker, uh, who has now left to go to Marvel Television. But he said, um, how would you feel about working on a Carnage? And, I, and at that point, you know, I'm not going to say no to a lot because I want to keep working in the comics at that point. So I said, sure. And then after, after I do it, he said, oh, keep in mind, when we last left him, he was lobotomized. <laughs> and I was like, well, where did that leave me? <laughs> you know, and so that was one of the ideas of like, everybody's like, oh, it should have been Cletus. And I was like, yeah, but Cletus was lobotomized. So I had to do something. And again, taking the point of view of these almost C-list villains, I like the idea that they get wind that the good guys have taken carnage and kind of tamed him. And so now these guys who don't have the same means or the, you know, the same luck, I should say, attempt to do it with Carnage. And to me, that, that could plant seeds for humor. It could plant seeds for a lot of stuff. And so I'm, I'm very proud of Superior Carnage because it, it, I think it was from top to bottom what I wanted to set out to do. And, you know, if people, if fans out there didn't like it, that I, I totally understand that too. I've got a lot of things I'm fans about. It's like, don't mess with it. But <laughs> this was my take on Carnage. And, and if you don't like it, that's fine. But it's, it was what I set out to, get, to do. I got no one to blame but myself. I think that's funny that you have these fans that are upset about the symbiote going to someone other than Cletus. And yet we have Eddie Brock not being Venom for so long. I know. And Eddie Brock was always a way better character than Cletus. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree, too. But it was kind of like, well, you know, you can't knock what fans like, you know, that everybody likes what they like. But I told you I, I enjoyed clonage. There's something wrong with me as well. But, um, <laughs> Did you feel no, any yeah. pressure to like from editorial to return it to Cletus at the end? Um, you know, I knew that they wanted certain things. And so they would say to me, look, do whatever you want to do, but this is kind of the status quo we want to put things on. You know, again, at the level I'm at, sometimes you can come in and you can do the best job you, you can do, but they also want you to return things to the status quo before you leave. And that's right. fine. That's fair. Now, now, how did you hit upon the wizard? Because I thought, I, I you know, initially when, when I was reading this, I was like, okay, let's see where this is going. And then when it was kind of like, you know, scientists versus scientists and, you know, well, you know, the wizard's losing, you know, losing what's left of his mind and right. he's still able to read, you know, autos. I thought that was just like really ended up being a great reveal. Um, so, I mean, how did, how did you, how were you able to hit upon that with the wizard? Well, again, you know, it starts with you can't use these 800 characters and you're like, OK. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, I had been reading um, 
you know, uh, the, it was the Freedom Foundation, and I think it was the last thing he was in, um, The Wizard. And I like the idea that he was kind of losing his mind. I mean, there's there's nothing to say he lost his mind in, in the issue prior to mine, mm-hmm. but it was very ambiguous. Black Bolt, the last you see of The Wizard before Superior Carnage is Black Bolt is leading him away. And then I think, I forget what character says, like, well, say goodbye to him. Now, obviously, they're not going to kill him, but that suggested something major to me, you know? And I thought, look, if he's going to maybe start giving him dementia or something, that could be a really interesting story. And it it became more human for me about this guy who really wants to leave a legacy and knows the writings on the wall and knows – I don't have that much time before I'm not coherent anymore. And I've got a son I want to reach out to. I've got a name I want to make for myself. And the clock is ticking. So he's got a little bit of desperation. And I think that's what drew me to The Wizard in particular, was a little sense of desperation because, you know, like I said, every one of these comics that I try and do, I try and enter on a human level and, and try and relate to them. And all of a sudden I found myself in the, in the wizard's skin and I thought he was a, a, a correct character for this story. Yeah, no, and the parallels just worked perfectly with him and Otto. I mean, that's, oh, that's, what, that's what brought it home to me, you know? It was, I mean, especially when you're talking about, you know, the desperation and, and the clock is ticking. I mean, that was, that was Otto pre-Superior. And, yeah, and that's, exactly. So it just, it just it, to me, it brought everything full circle, which is... I'm glad, I'm glad. Yeah. You know, and plus there was Claw. I have a soft spot for Claw, so. <laughs> I, do I do too, you know, and, and um, he, he just seemed like a natural person to have in there because he's got that sonic ability. And I thought, look, if I was trying to tame Carnage, I want somebody who could, you know, have some sort of control over this creature. And it just seemed like a natural well, this Definitely. is going to be kind of a, a touchy subject, but um, this is the last issue of Team Up, issue 12. Yeah. What's next? Is there anything you can tell us? Should we expect an announcement anytime soon? You know, the, sadly, the, there's nothing too exciting to announce. We, we're constantly talking about what I'm going to do next for them. But the onus is on me as much as it's on them because my schedule is so busy that a lot of times I'm like, all right, let me take a breather first and get this other project done before I can come back to comics. So I have talked to them. We are working on something, but I would. You, it's not like – I'm going to end this interview and, and not have told you something, and next week there's going to be a big announcement. There'll probably be an announcement, but I'm saying a couple of months down the line. Okay, interesting, because I, I remember reading a quote from you on some site saying you're like, they'll have to wrestle it away from my dead hands or something. <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. I, what I meant was, you know, there's going to be no one who tells me, you know, stop, stop doing Spider-Man. They've been very supportive. They really like the work I've been handing in, so I, I'm, I could not be happier that they're enjoying this. And, um, yeah, you know, I love this world and I think they know that. So this is going to be a big year for Spider-Man. You've got the movie, you've got Peter back, you've got a lot of titles coming out. So I'll just say, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll be busy on something soon. How's that? That that works. I mean, I'm going to throw one more question just to kind of, you know, make you, you know, worm something in. So, I mean, not saying this is what you're doing, but are there certain, characters or 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 ideas from the past that you know if you ever got a chance to work on them you would love to do it you know like i mean i know you were kind of hey we got a carnage thing for you but you know if you if you had a choice who who would you really want to work on 
I haven't, I haven't, being completely honest, I haven't sat down and thought, all right, here's my definitive, you know, uh, moon night or, or something like that. You know right. what I mean? I would love, and part of, for me, that's part of the joy and the fun of it is exploring that. Like, that's why I said yes to Carnage because I was kind of like, oh, okay. And I thought, well, I don't start any project until I'm in love with it. And I thought, here's a good. This is a good challenge for me because I like Carnage. But like I said, I, I I felt like you guys did. I was like, all right, get a little one note. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But if I can get in here and find something that I love about it, which I did, so in some ways, it keeps it fresh and challenging to to not think too far ahead. Does that make sense? It sounds like a cop out, but I don't I don't mean it to be a cop out. I haven't thought that far ahead. To say like, oh, call them and say, you got to let me do the next Thor or the next Daredevil or whatever because, uh, you know, I like to, I like to see what the, what the current climate is at the moment where they need me to write something. I just wanted you to say swarm. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be a long podcast then because I'm not saying that. <laughs> uh, Dan, anything else from you? No, no, uh, Kevin. We want to thank you for being on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Of course, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Where can we find you online, or any of your work, or anything you're doing right now? You can follow me on Twitter at, at Kevin Shinnick. Um, KevinShinnick.com is also a website that I post a lot of stuff that I'm currently doing. Um, a lot of stuff in the works that will be announced, not just comic wise, but other other stuff as well. They'll be announced there and on Twitter. Um, and I'm trying to think what else. I was just on that show at midnight, uh, Chris Hardwick show on Comedy Central. I, they're probably going to repeat that soon, so you can keep an eye out for that. But um, but other than that, you know it all. You know you, you'll know it when I know it. How's that? <laughs> Sounds good to <laughs> Sounds- me. Definitely. All right, Kevin. Well, thanks again for joining us. Of course. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Now it's the time of the show where we read your comments and emails. Uh, We'd like to remind you first, though, that you can always leave us ratings and comments on our iTunes page or now on our Stitcher page, uh, which you can find by searching uh, Amazing Spider Talk or just Spider-Man will come up pretty, pretty quickly. Um, And if you want to email us, you can reach us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. All right, let's take go to this first review that we got on iTunes from Chris Johnson. It's called Amazingly Superior Podcast, 5 out of 5. And he says, I'm excited to join in on the continuation of this amazing podcast. I enjoy the reviews and insight, and I'm looking forward to the amazing future. Thanks again. Well, thanks again, Chris, for joining us as we've made the change to amazing. And thanks for making sure that Amazing is in your po- your podcast review 900 times. We really need to get this branding down, right, Dan? Yeah, it would be just amazing. 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 Uh, you see? I oh. <laughs> see. Uh, so our next comment is from uh, – I'm going to attempt to read a handle that's in shorthand. It's alt underscore SM86. So I'm assuming that's ultimate Spider-Man 86 is what it's shorthand for. Uh, it's titled – Light a signal fire. Perfect Geek Podcast has arrived. Five out of five stars. And this comment goes, look, there's a lot of comic book podcasts out there. Some try to jive and chat about the industry. Others focus on singular titles and may just meander about and pander to cynical fanboys who just want to complain each week. 
Forget the rumor milling. You don't need to listen to fake inside baseball any longer. These guys are the real deal. Mark and Dan are basically professional collectors with genuine insight and appreciation for comics. They're longtime fans, and it shows. They don't just make a show so they can yak their yak, so to speak. This is a professional podcast as you can get about this stuff without Kevin Smith's budget, and even he spends too much time laboring over small details. Competent reviews, excellent critiques, intelligent discussions, and fact-based debates. With a myriad of comics at their disposal, they can jump into the long box and make any fan from any era feel included. Creators have even shown genuine appreciation for their podcast, so get on it. Click subscribe and stop wasting time reading this review. Click listen already. That's a really nice review, right, Dan? Yeah, we got to get this ultimate Spider-Man guy writing all of our press. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say that you do like to obsess over the small details, don't you, Dan? I do like to obsess over small details. <laughs> Just as I said that, Dan's thinking, ah, his microphone sounds terrible right now. <laughs> but read more reviews, Dan. All right, so the next one is from Grady Smidgens, and it's titled Great Podcast 5 Out of 5. And uh, it goes like this. Love this show. These two know they're Spidey, and I really enjoy their debates. Keep the episodes coming. All right. Our next one is Amazing Spider Host by James Matson. For a second, I thought that said Marzen, and I thought Cyclops was writing us. Uh, <laughs> and James writes, it's fantastic to hear intricate discussions about the new Spider releases from two guys who love Spidey as much as I do. Dan and Mark make my weekly driving ordeals much easier than they usually are. And I will continue to support this podcast as long as they continue expressing the amount of devotion for the comics that I have. Awesome. Well, okay, our last review comes from CZ81. It's titled Return of Peter and this podcast from My Return to Spider-Verse. And he says, just one listen, I'm hooked. As a kid, I subscribed to Amazing Spider-Man beginning with number 327. I had every issue all the way through the end of Onslaught Aftermath. I'm discovering a comic book renaissance now in my adulthood, and what better time to do it with Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 3, Number 1. After one show, this podcast has a new listener, especially now that I'm going to attempt to get reacquainted with my old collection in hopes of getting the complete ASM list. I'm looking forward to more podcasts and comic talk to come. Well, that was excellent. All right. Well, now that we read through your comments, let's get back with the uh, Amazing Spider-Talk and Friends segment. Now the one, the only, the incomparable Ron Friends. Well, guys, uh, welcome back to the show. Today we have Ron Friends here with us today. Thanks for joining us, Ron. It's great to be back with you. Thank you very much for asking me. Oh, anytime. Um, so uh, we're really excited about um, talking to you about your actually new issues um, in in the Spider-Man world. How long has it been since you've uh, done a Spidey comic? You're trying to make me cry, aren't you? Um, <laughs> I really don't know, Dan. What would uh, I don't know? Either one of you remember the last thing I would have done with Spider-Man might have been the Revenge of the Green Goblin. I guess I think that came after. Yeah, it was Hobgoblin Lives, and then it was Revenge of the Green Goblin that uh, that I worked on with Roger Stern and Pat Olive. Um, so it might have been as far back as that. I'm not sure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, Mark, so do you know that date? Uh, that was around 2000. That was part of my top 10 Green Goblin storyline countdown for what it was worth. I'm just saying. <laughs> Plug and chasing, amazing as always. So, 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 Ron. I mean, with the, with the absence, how how did how they rope you into doing this? Uh, they how they wrote me. <laughs> they they asked. Um, I uh, it was kind of funny actually because 
uh, Ellie Pyle, who's a, a terrific young woman, a, a terrific editor, as near as I can tell, uh, she gave me a call out of the blue, as such calls are, and asked if I was interested. Um, but her original approach was that it was a flashback to my era on the comic. And before I called her back, I, I contacted DeFalco, and I said, because he sometimes has his antenna up to things going on in the office much better than I do. And I said, are you aware of this or anything? And he went, no, I don't know what she's talking about. And uh, so we were try- I was trying to think what, what they would be flashing back to as far as our era and such. And, uh, and it, uh, when I finally called her back, it turns out that it really wasn't our era, our era being the 80s. It, it wasn't flashing back to that at all. It did, however, and she didn't seem to be as aware of this, it did kind of flash back to the Revenge of the Green Goblin era, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, because of that, she was asking me who I'd like to work with as an anchor. And, I mean, Sal's always at the top of the list. But I also mentioned Pat Olive and uh, Brett Breeding and a couple other people. And uh, and she said, well, I know Pat Olive is busy because I offered him something else and he wasn't able to take it. And I said, well, I know he's doing some work for D.C., so, okay, fair enough. And she said, I'd really like to work with Sal and uh, again. And I said, terrific. Okay, that I, I'm happy as a clam then. And uh, I was uh, talking to Pat Olive a few days later, and I said, uh, "I said just out of curiosity, what are you working on, man? I understand uh, you had to t- you turned something down for Marvel. What did you turn down from Ellie?" And he was quiet for a second, and he went, um, "Those uh, two issues of Superior Spider-Man team up." And I went, "Oh, okay, okay." <laughs> and, and, and in retrospect, I felt a little bad because when Ellie called and asked me, she goes, "I was wondering if you'd be interested in helping us out in two issues of." Uh, Superior Spider-Man team up. And I said, and everybody else turned you down, Ellie. And she, you know, kind of coughed for a second and went, well, no, not at all. You know, that kind of thing, which is just something I did to be self-effacing. But it turns out, you know, she, she, I, you know, I don't know where on the list I was. There might have been five guys between Pat Olive and me. I have no idea. <laughs> but, uh, but I thanked Pat for it. You know, I even double checked with him. And uh, and asked him if he had thrown my name out, and he said, "No, no, that that was all her idea. Uh, all I knew was that I didn't have time to do it." And I said, "Okay, fair enough." But they ended up on me, and it it really didn't hail back to any given period, other than you know the the Revenge of the Green Goblin was the stuff that kind of firmly established a timeline between when he was you know quote unquote killed in uh, back in the day. And when he returned in the Ramita Jr. stuff and everything, it kind of, you know, Roger kind of filled that whole area in of his time in Europe with the Scryers and, 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 and did it all in very skillful flashbacks and everything. So since this flashback happens during that period, then I, you know, it is sort of kind of from a period that I had a hand in, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, anyway. So it was it was interesting, uh, and I was happy to take the work and uh, you know remind Marvel that I'm alive and all that kind of stuff. I mean, when it was uh, when they did a preview of it on on the net, I was pleasantly surprised that I did not get trolled that badly. Uh, it between it being the art being appropriate to the flashback that it was you know the period that it was flashing back to. And the fact that it was Sal Buscema, and I don't think anybody has the balls to troll Sal Buscema on the internet. Uh, between those two things, I I was pleasantly surprised how little uh, 
negative comment there was from the from the usual suspects, especially since I've seen guys like well, I've seen Walt Simonson get trolled on the internet when he did those <laughs> indestructible Hulk books and stuff. Yeah, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's trolling towards older uh, artists? Well, I I think it's coming from young guys who are you know people are only used to uh, this is going to sound ridiculous and I apologize but people are only used to what they're used to in comics uh whatever their first comic was whatever is going on at the time they enter comics that's probably what they're going to gravitate to for the rest of their life and Walt is I mean he's even more graphic now than he was when he was doing the original Thor run um so I think you know you don't see a lot of that going on right now. I think to to the the people that are trained with the artwork, the the kind of incredibly detailed, sometimes a little static artwork that is the standard right now. I think they look at Walt, and I, you know, I mean, even guys like John Romita Jr. get trolled because they look at that stuff, and it look it's very graphic. You know, it's it's very uh, representational rather than literal, and. Fans who are used to what's being done more uh, more now uh, react to it very negatively. I mean, plus the fact it's the internet and everybody's got you know anonymity and everybody mouths off and uh, it's it can be brutal. And I was fully expecting to be brutalized and was pleasantly surprised that we weren't that much. You know, you managed to stave off the decay of culture. There was so. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the, so, comments, the, the only the, the 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 positive aspect of it was that it was very appropriate to the flashback, and if it, you know, because I believe me, I, when we did the Thunderstrike miniseries a couple of years ago and stuff, I read some reviews where it's like, "Who is this for? What is this? Is ridiculous? What?" Is, because you know, unfortunately, comics are so enclosed now and and so encapsulated. And uh, uh, there's probably some other words I could use, and they're not coming to me right now. Uh, but the fans have this attitude that if, if it's not something that they themselves would enjoy, they don't think it has a, uh, the right to exist. And it's, you know, it's a stunning attitude given where comics used to be, when there used to be romance comics and Western comics and war comics and children's, you know, comics, uh, Richie Rich and things. And, you know, like Archie is dying on the vine now because of how the comics industry has, uh, in my opinion, collapsed in on itself and become this smaller entity. And, uh, you know, so there's the, the variety isn't there. I mean, the, the audience that's left is pretty laser focused on on superheroes and not just superheroes but darker superheroes feet of clay superheroes you know quote unquote realistic superheroes so anything outside of their their sphere of reference gets brutalized and you know i mean it fair is fair i mean it's a perceptual issue it's always been a subjective industry so i mean you you know you take the good with the bad so coming from uh, you know a guy who who started back in the two hundreds of Spider Man, you know, and now you're contributing to this new superior status quo. Like, what's that been like for you to like to have a hand in this new quote unquote legacy? Um, I, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I'm going to hide behind what I just said about fans, in that you you know you love what your first you tend to gravitate and love your what your first, whatever your first exposure to comics was okay so i was originally exposed to comics back in the 60s 
Um, I, you know, obviously my run on Thor and Spider-Man showed me as being somebody who <laughs> regretted not having been born earlier and being a part of the original House of Ideas and stuff uh, with my love of Ditko and Kirby and the Basemas and the Ramitas and on and on and on. So it was weird for me because I, I'll throw this in now because it applies to both the Green Goblin and the Dr. Octopus. You know, things shift and evolve and change and the approach to characters evolves. And Marvel used to be very, very well known for its, if not its continuity, for its consistency. Okay, characters, it was very important to the writers and the editors when I came up at Marvel that characters act consistently. I mean, you know, Captain America had to act like Captain America and talk like Captain America every time Captain America appeared. And there wasn't Mark Grunewald's Captain America and Bill Mantlo's Captain America and Len Wein's Captain. It was Captain America. Okay, and the company took great pains and uh, pleasure in making sure that that character was consistent. Same with Peter Parker. Same with all of their uh, all their characters. Um, but when when I when we worked on uh, when we were on Spider Girl and we did uh, Norman Osborn in Spider Girl, and we did a pretty classic Norman Osborn. And a, a couple of the reviews I read and some of the letters we were getting were saying that our Norman Osborn was wrong, and. You know, Tom and I were kind of laughing about it because at that time in the mainstream Marvel Universe, Norman Osborn was inexplicably <laughs> the leader of Hammer and running what used to be S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, that kind of thing. And he had be- basically had become, since his return, had become like Lex Luthor or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was going, so, you know, you're writing him like he's some kind of a crazy person, and that's not Norman Osborn. <laughs> and, and, I'm sorry, but, you know, with a little bit of uh, uh, of perspective and a little bit of context, that is who the character was. Um, Roger Stern, God love him, once uh, once referred to Norman Osborn as being crazier than a soup sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the Norman Osborn Tom and I knew, and that's the Norman Osborn we wrote, and we were being called out for getting him wrong. I feel a little bit the same way with the Superior Spider-Man run because the we we never handled uh, Octavius in our original run, uh, my original run with Spider uh, of Spider-Man with Tom DeFalco. Uh, Tom did handle him, you know, after, after when he came back without me on Spectacular and on Amazing and stuff. He did hand he did a couple of really terrific. Um, uh, Dr. Octopus stories, not the least of which is the one we refer back to in the Superior Spider-Man story, uh, the one that introduced his uh, his ex-fiance and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. The, and um, so so Tom had handled the character, and and at one point we I, we had a chance to do. Do you remember the Web Spinners series that ran briefly, where you yeah. could do you could do an arc of Spider-Man from any period in Spider-Man history? So you know. Tom thought it was natural. Uh, he and I were going to do two issues together. So we went to the black costume era and we brought in Silver Sable and when she was working with Sandman and all this kind of stuff. And, and we did this little story about a, a postage stamp Balkan country and uh, Doc Ock was there with the Beatle and a couple other people. And, you know, Ock is nuts. I mean, he's he's a screaming egotist. 
And in the course of our story, he kills the leader of the rebels just because he can. The guy was really no threat to him. He just did it out of pure spite. And, you know, that's who Doc Ock was. But I'm sure the people that have been reading and really enjoying Superior are getting a different idea of who Octavius is. You know, in much the same way, you know, even with all that consistency I was talking about back in the day, you know, Magneto became the leader of the X-Men, even though he had overthrown countries and sunk atomic submarines and killed hundreds of people, you know, that kind of thing. So there tends to be this... this uh, Incredibly loose consistency. Yes, this, this grace that is somehow, uh, somehow sometimes bestowed based on the veracity of the story, I guess, to adapting the character or softening the character or adjusting the character or the perceptions of the character. And uh, that's a little tough for me, you know, because I know we're supposed to uh, feel for Ock and and identify with Ock now that he's gone through this superior Spider-Man thing. I know Pete's memories were influencing him and, and on and on and on. But, you know, I drew a sequence where Doc Ock snapped the guy's neck just because he could. So the idea of him standing in for Spider-Man for a couple of years, you know, really kind of annoyed me on a level that maybe it didn't other people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, not to get too far away from the team-up issues, Ron, but I mean, why, why do you think that is the case? Why, why, I mean, what, what, what was the shift with, with the, in terms of this honoring of continuity and consistency? Oh, uh, it, when, it started when comics became art. Mark. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of my, I, I, it's one of my old saws at this point. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it, when I got into comics and my, my view of comics still is uh, a craft. And if the reader takes it as art, reacts to it as art, that's fantastic. And that's wonderful. And it's very, very gratifying and very, um, you know, that's that's terrific. It makes you feel 10 feet tall. But it's a craft. And it's somewhere along the way, the objective standard became uh, much more fluid and has pretty much disappeared at this point. And now we really are in an era where a different writer does his take on the Fantastic Four, does his take on Peter Parker or, you know, so on and so forth. And there is there isn't an editorial entity to say, no, that's not the character. Thank you. Maybe you'd like to create your own character or write something else for us, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's a shift in policy. It's a shift in approach. And these days, you know, you know it, as I said, it, it did even happen back in, back in the day with a character like Magneto. But in this case... Um, Joe Casada, you know, God love him because he was he was a big supporter of Spider Girl, no matter what a lot of people think. Um, but but Joe Casada once said uh, early in his tenure as editor in chief that he was never going to let continuity stand in the way of a good story. <laughs> and at one point, I remember looking over what was being done at Marvel at the time, and I went, well, "Okay, well, continuity's been blown to hell." I'm still waiting for the really good story that was worth the death of the continuity, you know, because yeah. a lot of us, when we, you know, coming up through the 60s and 70s, one of the things we, in the 80s, one of the things we loved about Marvel was the consistent universe. Yeah. 
I mean, guys like Mark Grunewald just did a wonderful job of, you know, creating this stable Marvel universe that all these really cool stories could happen in. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see any reason why that needed to to change, but it did. And uh, I think it has to do, you know, it, it had to do with a lot of different factors. One being we lost the mass market and, you know, we're, we're in the comic shops now. So it's a much more enclosed market. It's a much smaller, you know, one could say intimate readership who to some degree are well-versed, if not even jaded by comics material and on and on and on. So everything, all of those factors, business factors and distribution factors and everything affect the content because you, you start to adjust the material to the audience. There's, you know, in, in any kind of entertainment form, you, you, f- you find out what works, you find out what your audience responds to, and you do that or you die. You know, so. yeah. I mean, and it's and it's it's totally got to be sales related too, because I mean, you think like you look at like Marvel now and, and all new Fifty Two. I mean, they they rebooted all these books, but these books were 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 kind of pitched on the creative teams. It wasn't the characters that were selling right. the books. It's it's you know, right. see Grant Morrison on Superman and 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 you know yeah. Scott Snyder on Batman and and you know Matt Fraction on Fantastic Four until that didn't work, and now it's James Robinson. <laughs> so yeah, and somewhere in there it was Hicks too. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. You're right. And uh, so it is. It's it's a different. It's a you know. People ask me to try to compare the the comics I worked on to the comics now, and it's apples and oranges. It truly, truly is. That's not just me trying to avoid the question. It, it's it, it's comparing two things that don't really line up because the 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 audience and thus the purpose for the existence of the material is completely different. Mm. We were, you know, we were. This is going to sound self-aggrandizing, and please, I don't mean it that way at all. The the stuff that we were producing in the '80s is much more akin to what Marvel Studios is doing now in the films, because they're trying to take these characters and concepts and entertain the widest audience possible, and that was what we were trying to do. And. That is not what Marvel and DC are trying to do. They're trying to keep the 100,000 or so fans that they still have entertained. And it's becoming almost like a gladiatorial bout these days. You know, it, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes I see the new press releases and you can almost hear the company screaming, are you not entertained? <laughs> going, Meh. You know, that kind of thing. So let's see, you know, what character we can destroy now for entertainment value. You know, that kind of thing. So it, it's a, it's really is a, a different language. It's a, you know, a different audience. We're producing comics for adults. When I was working in the 80s and 90s, we were still, you know, we, we still had a broader audience. And part of that audience was was kids. Now it's like insulting to think that kids would read comic books and it's i gotta be honest i'm of a mindset where the idea that we are producing stories about big muscular guys in tights and capes because some of them still do wear tights and capes but to say that we're producing this material for adults that kids cannot read strikes me as ridiculous on the face of it just ridiculous 
because the forum was really it was created by young people for young people. If you go by from Superman, Siegel and Schuster were teenagers when they created Superman. And the character, you know, is wish fulfillment for for young adolescents. You know, I, I was part of a, a of a college study group uh, Monday night at, at a local woman's college. It's being taught by an incredibly, incredibly intelligent man named uh, Wayne Wise, who has written some comics and knows the industry and knows the history of the industry. And, you know, at one point the question became, as as characters evolve and change for society, have we just lost our need for heroes, you know, because the audience is falling away and the movies have supplanted the mass market presence of these characters. And, and as far as comics are concerned, have we just outgrown these characters? And, you know, my, my plaintive voice, you know, uh, screaming in the wilderness is, these characters were never meant for you. They're, you know, if adults are tired of these characters, that's perfectly fine. But the characters were never designed to to really function to entertain just adults. I mean, think about that for a second, and it strikes you as kind of ludicrous. I mean, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, it was a terrific movie, a good action movie. I enjoyed it as a political thriller. But you know what it really wasn't? It wasn't much of a superhero movie because can you – I mean how many kids would really go into Captain America the Winter Soldier and enjoy it? Not they many. A, they made a superhero movie for adults. But at the least he used his shield. And, and they're doing it with the cartoons too. That's what blows my mind. I saw the Flashpoint Paradox and I couldn't believe how violent it was. I wouldn't show that to a kid. I mean, somebody gets shot in the head, and they do a shot right through the, the hole in the guy's head. I was I was offended, <laughs> and, it, and it's getting to the point where you know it's like I, I am very pleased. One of the projects I'm working on now is doing children's books for Warner Publishing uh, through Bread Breeding, and you know the idea of being some young kid's first experience with Superman. And Shazam and, and characters like this, you know, that at some point some kid gets into the industry or, is, you know, grows up to to read comics or maybe comics will wise up and start. Yeah. But anyway, to, to think that a kid's love of Superman might start with a, a book that that I worked on is very great. The, 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 the potential for that is very gratifying to me. And that's what I loved about working at Marvel in the 80s. Because, yeah, you had adults coming up to enjoying your work, but you had kids who thought Thor was cool, who thought Spider-Man was cool. I mean, when you think about it, the people that are working in the industry, guys like you, when did you start reading comic books? Was it at 24 or was it when you were eight? Eight. Eight. Exactly. <laughs> and yet we're not creating that next generation because eight-year-olds can't read comic books anymore. Ron, I'm having like an existential crisis here on the other end of this line with you. <laughs> Why is that? Because <laughs> I'm the guy that's podcasting about Spider-Man at the age of 28. <laughs> okay. That's okay. <laughs> well, that's great. That's wonderful. No. I know. We're, I'm excited about it. We're trying. We're trying to analyze it like it's Tolstoy. That's. The- <laughs> <laughs> and God love you. I mean, that, that's something that Stan brought to the party, which, but but what Stan did so skillfully was what you know what you recognize as you age, what you recognize about the original run of classic Star Trek, which is you know when you were a kid, 
it had a lot of color and Captain Kirk fought a giant lizard guy or these bright lights shocked Scotty and knocked him across the room. And, and then as you get older, you watch these again and you're going, oh, my God, the metaphor and what there's that's Vietnam. This, this is, you know, superpowers getting involved in smaller countries, politics and on and on and on. It, it functioned on all these wonderful levels. And that's what Stan brought. But in, over the years, what's been lost is that level that the kids can relate to the books on because it's become more adult content because the characters have become frankly bastards i mean i always made the joke that the the pitch for the original run of uh of what the hell are they called the ultimates the the original run of the ultimates the pitch must have been it's like the avengers only everybody's a prick (laughs) <laughs> and somebody went fantastic make it you know that kind of thing so all righty yes <laughs> <That's> well dan <laughs> well, anticipation. well dan how far off the reservation are we right now <laughs> well, that was all to answer your question about what was it like coming back to these characters it's a different world it really is you know, it's a, it, for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a different environment to, to work in. And, uh, you know, to get it specifically to this issue, um, uh, Mr. Shinnick is a guy who, from my understanding is, and you can clarify this when you interview him, was that he works in TV. He worked uh, – he, he's a writer, possibly a producer, I don't know, for uh, Robot Chicken and Mad TV, and he has been a contributor to those types of programs. And uh, – Marvel has a tendency, I don't know whether he contacted Marvel or they contacted him, because Marvel does have a tendency to reach out to these people um, who are perceived to to lend street cred to Marvel, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, So I I don't know. I I have no direct knowledge of how he found Marvel or they found him. But, you know, his his the story, I thought, was fascinating in the dynamic he was setting up. But it. I, I think you'll agree. It kind of had a lighter touch to it. Yeah, absolutely. That than than I'm than I tend to be used to, and uh, you know, I in the story, the visual storytelling, I tried to to bring some shadow to it and some darkness to it, and some, uh, I mean, some stuff that was in the script. Of, you know, that whole edge of Norman could go off at any time, type of thing and stuff. And I I tried to play that up in the in the uh, the visual, but. You know, I think there was that there's that one splash page where, you know, when I got to the point in the script where Kevin was asking for a shot of Green Goblin and Doctor Octopus flying together on the glider, and they're having fun. <laughs> you know, I'm having this flashback to you know some montage of two guys on a tandem bike while they play. Something tells me I'm into something good, you know. <laughs> or guy love. Or guy love. Yeah, I don't know YouTube there. Yeah, I sent that to you. I, it was, you know, I think I reacted the way Kevin wanted me to react. I went, what the hell? But, it, you know, so it was certainly interesting. And, uh, you know, and, and when I read the reviews and when I read some of the comments online about it, I mean, people enjoyed it. They really enjoyed the dynamic between Ock and, uh, and Norman. But what's interesting is, you know, as I said before, when I handled Dr. Octopus the last time, he's not exactly wrapped all that tight himself. But the juxtaposition of the two characters for the purposes of this story were 
scientific the scientific approach and logic versus passion and a little bit of nuts, you know, that kind of thing. And that plays through to, to a certain degree in, in, in the second issue. Uh, the, the next issue becomes basically, from the pages I've shown you, tends to become kind of a recap of everything that has happened in the run of the stories, and it kind of juxtaposes the, you know, Ox experiences with his uh, ex-fiance and even some uh, some parallels between what happened with his life then and what happened with his life since he's been the superior Spider-Man. It's a lot of montages. It's a lot of recap. It's a lot of, you know, uh, kind of bringing things into perspective as it pertains to this argument of passion versus logic. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you were talking about like continuity and, uh, you know, this, this ever growing world that we're meant to keep up with is like as an artist, you know, all, all these montages you drew have different forms of the Green Goblin and, and Otto and all these different points in time throughout the years. What yeah. kind of what kind of library are you given access to so you can reference all these different costumes? Is that on you as an artist yeah. to keep up with the books? Or? That, that's it's good. It, if you work with Roger Stern, he does all the research and he sends you a wonderful package of Xeroxes. Uh, in this case, I mean, and since uh, I mean the last several years, you know, it's a pretty much assumed you have access to the internet and. Uh, yeah, I do a lot of, you know, I sit here at night before I go to the studio the next day and and we'll do Google searches for all the stuff I'm going to need the next day and everything, you know, and uh, find out what I can. You know, as I uh, when I sent you some of those pages, I think I even mentioned to you that I actually really enjoyed drawing that one version of the Green Goblin that uh, Dotson, I don't know who designed it because Dotson handled it, uh, Humberto Ramos handled it. A couple of different people, but there was that one that looked very medieval, that one version of the Green Goblin that looked very medieval that uh, was actually kind of fun to draw. I really – I liked what they were what they were doing with the mask and all that kind of stuff, and uh, that was kind of cool. I enjoyed that. And with Doc Ock, I mean the, it starts off initially he was in that white suit phase where he was just wearing a suit with his arms, which was a you know, very cool look for him. Uh, but at one point when he – uh, I believe it's in part two, he goes back. I mean, you, you've seen part one, you see how that ends. So naturally, uh, Otto has some issues with Norman. And he goes back to the mansion in Europe, and I have him dressed for uh, for battle. He's wearing his green and orange jumpsuit, you know, because uh, he's not going to wear a, you know, $5,000 suit if he's going there to... F- fully intending to get into a knockdown drag out with the green goblin, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I got to do a couple of different looks of autos, you know, the, the, the glasses in the suit, the goggles in the green and orange jumpsuit. Uh, and, and that was fun. I mean, I, Doc Ock's always been an interesting character to me. I've always, uh, I, when, when we were doing that web spinners, uh, Tom said, you know, well, who do you want to do? And I wanted to do somebody we hadn't done during the regular run. And, so, you know, Doc Ock was at the top of my list because we had done an annual where I got to do Craven. And, uh, you know, so try to try to fill in your blanks. When Tom makes the offer, you you go ahead and indulge yourself a little bit, you know. I mean, How do you, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to jump in with the Doc Ock thing with, you know, I know when, 
when we had you on last time, you were talking about the you know the old the, in terms of coming up with some of the characters during your run with Tom in the eighties with the the deck of cards, the animal cards. The animal. <laughs> uh, yeah. But so, but how come Doc Ock just never entered into it? You would have figured that he would have, you know, like well, he always he always finds his way into one of the you know into one of the big runs, you know, like yeah, no, it's, I mean, as I said, I mean, Tom did handle him and did some really wonderful stories with him uh, after I, you know, when he came back to the titles uh, in the nineties, but. Uh, I, the one of the reasons we didn't get along, to, we didn't get around to the classics in our run, was because Tom's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, his ethic on our run was to create new characters. Right. I mean, we created uh, Black Fox, Puma, Silver Sable, uh, Slide. Uh, you know, everybody, you, you, everything from minor villains to people who other writers reacted to who became, you know, fairly major villains. And uh, and that was, you know, when when uh, Tom had always, uh, you know, always had an affection for Spider-Man. And at the time we were coming on there after Roger and and uh, and and J.R., I, I think after they had hit such a home run with Hobgoblin. I, I think that might have, you know, honestly had some influence on the fact that, you know, let's not go back. Let's keep moving forward. You know, I, it was a, DeFalco has very much that ethic because, I mean, even when on Thor, we came up with Eric Masterson because we thought he should have that uh, identity tie, that alter ego tie to humanity. But he did not want to go back to Don Blake. He wanted to move forward and do something different and, uh, you know, create a different dynamic, which I think we did by having Eric have a son and a life of his own and such, you know. So that that was the biggest thing. So we ended up doing, what, two and a half years on, on Amazing. And when we got a chance to do an annual a few years later and when we had a chance to do the web spinners, there were still all these classic characters that I had never gotten a chance to take a crack at. Uh, some of them got answered just from the the Marvel Universe. Remember the handbook for the Marvel Universe and stuff? Because I got to, in the handbook of the Marvel Universe, I got to do the Lizard, I got to do the Vulture, I got to handle some of the classic guys there. Um, and I, I think I got to do the Lizard in an Untold Tales of Spider Man, you know. So I've I've gotten to play with the Lizard a little bit in the years since. But uh, oh, and in fact, that I. I can update the answer to the question was the last time I handled Spider-Man. It would have been Mr. and Mrs. That, that's, that strip Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man in the Spider-Man family book. Mm. That we ended up kind of tying into Spider-Girl continuity. But technically, they were Spider-Man stories. So that would have been the last time I handled Spider-Man. Uh, they, they were a little, you know, they, they let us do things that ended up in Spider-Girl, basically were early Spider-Girl continuity because it was right after they had done One More Day and uh, they were kind of throwing fans a bone that if you want to see Pete and Mary Jane married, here's this feature in Spider-Man Family, you know, that kind of thing. Um, when you begin to work on these spreads that are in this book, like how do you begin to lay that out? Because they're very intricate. The one you sent us with the... The tentacle arms and the bridge and the goblin's face. Like, how, how do you lay that out? Are you given a couple of things that are need to go there, and then you just kind of put them in corners, or how do you handle that? I, I break it. I mean, the, the the writing. I mean, these were these were basically full scripts. I think what Marvel does these days is they they have the writers basically write full script, but then they also let the writers see the pencils 
and see if there's anything they want to adjust or change or anything uh, once they see the pencils, which, you know, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's not full script. It's not plot. It's a a weird amalgam of things. So Kevin was pretty clear. Mr. Shinnick was pretty clear on what he wanted. And so you take, you know, you make a note or you make a mental note of what scenes have to be on the page. And then you, uh, I thumbnail. I mean, I do, you know, uh, basically it, it's uh, it's in proportion to a comic book page, but I have four of them on an eight and a half by 11 sheet. And, uh, you know, when you're working that small, you can start playing with things and, and, uh, Frankly, the one with the with the, the the bridge supports, you know, the 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 bridge cables breaking up the the panels and stuff that came from pulling some real reference of the George Washington Bridge. And I, there's this one shot that's taken from this one angle where these cables are going off and off, you know, up and off the photo. And I went, boy, that could be really cool. <coughs> Those could kind of be the panel borders, and that gives you plenty of room between, you know. And so that's you know it. it just comes from looking at the reference and uh, and the requirements of the of the shot. I'm I'm very paranoid sometimes about doing that kind of stuff because I am very much a storytelling guy. I, I have a very hard time compromising storytelling uh, for design, and it was very important to me. And I hope it still works on those pages. It, it, was, it was always important to me that the eye still goes to the proper next panel, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, I mean, I still want you to start in the upper left and then go right and then down and right again and all this. And I hopefully those kinds of design issues don't uh, mess with that, you know. But uh, I was happy with a couple of those, a couple of those spreads and a couple of those pages because I, you know, contrary to popular belief, Ron Friends is not, trapped in the six panel grid i mean i i have <laughs> that kind of stuff too you know so i mean maybe not as much as some people but uh when uh, when tasked i think i can i can deliver something a little different you know now now ron beyond the um the costuming question that that dan had asked you and how do you go about trying to achieve like the whole flashback aesthetic because um, there, there's something to it, obviously. So, I mean, from is you know, from your approach on pencils, what what are you what are you looking to do? I, actually, in this case, Mark, I think it was just a case of uh, that's. It, I honestly do feel it was. I was a decent choice for this because the 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 flashback it was flashing back to my aesthetic. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's really no denying that. I mean. When I when I do uh, mainstream stuff, I just worked on a Flash annual, and uh, and I want to thank Brian Cunningham for that. And uh, you know, I've worked on some some quote unquote modern material. One of the comments you always see in the reviews is that my style seems to be a throwback to that. I, you know, it's something that I, I really admire. Guys like Mark Bagley and and Stu Immerman and a bunch of other guys that, that you know came up around the same time I did who have adjusted and, and, uh, you know, but Mark's stuff to me looks every bit as dynamic and comic booky, if, if that's a term as his nineties stuff. And nobody seems to give him the kind of <clears throat> grief that they give me. I think it's because he still is and always has been a little more detail oriented than I am. I'm very economy of line compared to a lot of the guys these days. 
Well, they also, you know, the colors, the uh, way the coloring is done in this is very different too. What did you think of that? Well, I mean, I think if you're going to do the um, like a flashback, it definitely evokes, you know, the simpler color palette um, and makes it stand out from, I guess, like more richly colored things you might see uh, today with all the shaders and everything. Right. No, um, I, I, I was a little torn. I, I told Ellie I thought it was very daring. I thought it was an interesting approach. I, I'll be honest. Personally, I was afraid be, uh, for the very reason that it was, you know, uh, because it was my work. I was afraid it would kind of put a spotlight on the people who would tend to think of my work as being throwback anyway. You know that kind of thing. I, I did think, think I, about that with you when I when I first saw it. <clears throat> I mean, I ended up. I I I really do appreciate what they were going for. I mean, I, I actually, not so much the flat color, even as the palette that they used, because it really, you know, I think it would have been even more effective had we been cutting more to present day and then back to the flashback and things like that. The fact that the whole, outside of the first page, the whole issue is flashback, I, I don't think it was quite as effective as it could have been, but overall, I thought the approach was, you know, was interesting. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's a it's a kind of a daring thing to kind of throw this into the marketplace full of modern shaders and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really are relying on the audience to react to it the way you did. You know that it that it does, and it's and it's always interesting to me what the perception of the readers are because comics in general. And I, you know, you know, I'm certainly not referring to guys who who write blogs and do podcasts and all this kind of stuff. But I think the 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 rank and file comic fan does not have a huge sense of context as to how the comics that they they're enjoying right now relate to the comics of the '80s and '90s and early 2000s because they're they're the initial reaction of those people seems to be well that's because the comics of the 70s 80s 90s and 2000s suck they were stupid you know and and they have that kind of a, uh, of an attitude about it so they don't really know how the comics of today relate to the comics of then um because you know it's kind of like when people do kirby and it's so cartoonish to the tropes of kirby that it really doesn't come close to capturing Kirby. I feel sometimes when they do flashbacks to other eras of comics, they miss that kind of thing. You know, they, they don't get it. And so, I mean, because if you're flashing back to around the period that we did, uh, revenge of the green goblin, computer coloring was already being done you know some of them some of the books were being overshaded to a to a distressful degree and uh so you know the flat color thing that's that's the 60s man that you know that maybe the 70s as well but into the 80s uh, you know things were starting to change already so it, that's not an, an accurate representation of the time period that's being represented if if i'm making myself clear here i don't know yeah, maybe they were going for a more dramatic difference. I think so, because it really does set a mood. I mean, I the scenes where, you know, in that first issue where uh, Otto is being led into the mansion, 
doing it with you know using the the tones that they used and the the grade tones and the blues and the and the, the greens and stuff i mean it's certainly you it set a wonderful mood of walking into this mansion with very low lighting or no lighting at all and everything and uh uh you know so i i, I think it it definitely succeeded in setting setting a mood uh, for the for the rest of the story uh, and and this, the colored pages I've seen of the next issue uh, are very much the same way. I mean, I, certainly I have no problem with graphic color. I mean, usually guys of my generation pine t- to work with flat color again rather than the overcolored stuff that you see sometimes now. And uh, you know, I got it. So I mean, you know, I, like I said, I, I I thought it was a, uh, I thought making the call was a little daring and i thought overall that it that it worked you know i mean from what i'm seeing from the from the fan response and the reader response uh, i think it worked uh, it had the effect they wanted it to have next question <laughs> <laughs> you left us speechless um well you know i mean we're talking about you know retro or vintage whatever you know, flashbacks whatever but so so tell me tell us what it was like to work with sal Oh, on this project, uh, on this project, on any project, working with Sal is one of the greatest pleasures of my professional career. I think, I, Daniel, I think you and I have talked about this before to some extent. Um, I grew up admiring Sal's work, like few others. I mean, uh, you know, Ramita and uh, Sal's brother John and Sal were the guys who really awakened. I mean, I, as a kid, I loved comic books, and I drew from the time I can remember. But these guys, those were the guys who who forged the aesthetic that made me really want to do this, to tell these kinds of stories the way they told them. The the, the drama and the action were just, just amazing. So I uh, the first time I worked with Sal was actually, do <laughs> you remember the new universe? Sal Buscema actually inked the first issue of Kicker's Inc. Um, of course, I didn't meet him at that point. And we also worked together on a series of... Uh, he was kind of around the periphery of the guys who were doing the original run of the MC2 titles. And he inked me on uh, my... Uh, he did a run of Avengers Next covers with me. And again, I didn't meet him that didn't really begin talking with him or anything like that but when we ended up on spider girl together we started to talk and to the point where i could actually say with relative certainty that sal would not deny it we're friends i mean he's, he's a wonderful <laughs> and the idea every once in a while i have to stop usually when i'm flipping through uh, an old comic that I found at my studio or the Avengers Essentials or something, I have to stop and remind myself that this in- wonderful man and his wonderful wife, whom I'm very, very fond of and have become friends with, this is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy <laughs> who did those books that made my heart pound and made me want to do this. You know, and of course, I've tried to tell Sal this, and he's usually very flattered, but then he'll also sometimes uh, be very mischievous and just say, "Yeah, okay, whatever." I mean, I I, I took to Baltimore uh, when I was uh, asked to present him with his Lifetime Achievement Award. I took an issue of the Avengers that 
really grabbed me when I was a kid. I I, had, I got a secondhand copy of it from a, a kid in the neighborhood, and it just it, it was. Um, let the game begin. They were fighting uh, Kang and the Grandmaster. It was leading into when they first introduced the Squadron Sinister and stuff. Yeah, I remember you showing me this comic. Yes, and I showed it to Sal probably that night. And he he took it from me and he flipped through it kind of brusquely. And he looked up at me and he went, you like this, huh? <laughs> and handed it back to me. And believe me, I love Sal. I'm not trying to disparage Sal in any way. But that he does not relate to his own impact on other people. You know, I was going to ask him to sign it, but after he reacted that way, I would have felt like an idiot. So I didn't. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, every once in a while I just pinch myself because, you know, this is Sal. This is the guy. This is This is the guy who did these books that, literally affected the 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 path of my uh my life and uh, so working with him and ha- here's here's another level that just blows my mind is that i have never worked with an inker who has respected my pencils as much as sal basema i mean when i send stuff off to sal and i see the inks it's what I sent off. I mean, you know, Sal believes an inker's job is to serve the pencils. And, uh, you know, I've told him a few times, uh, you know, I said, Sal, you know, please feel free to put more Sal in there if you feel the need or feel the desire. And he goes, well, Ron, your pencils are terrific. There's no, they, they don't need anything added to them. And I said, well, Sal, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your saying that, but, you know, please realize that you're the only one that feels that way. <laughs> I always feel like my my pencils could benefit from a little salvasema, you know that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, I he he has spoiled me over the years because you know one of the things you, when you get into this industry, you completely acknowledge the fact that it's a, a highly collaborative form. And when I started and dedicated myself to being a storyteller and a penciler. That meant, by definition, I was going to be working with anchors. And uh, I've worked with some of the best in the business. Joe Sinnott, Tom Palmer, Brett Breeding. My God, I've been one of the luckiest guys on the planet. Completely. But there's always that aspect of what they're contributing. And you always keep your eye on the final product. And with Sal... I on that run on Spider Girl, I just got very used to what I was actually doing in my studio by myself was actually making it out in front of the public in very much the same form that I was penciling it. Is this making any sense to you guys? Yes. Okay. And it, it was kind of gratifying that you know people were seeing what I was doing, and and Sal has spoiled me. I find now that I'm not working regularly with Sal and I am working with other anchors, not to disparage those gentlemen at all because these guys are all professionals who are doing the best work they know how. But it's different, you know. It's <laughs> I find myself quite often going, what, Sal? <laughs> and it's just me being selfish and ridiculous, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it, it's... 
to say that working, you know, that working with Sal Basema has has been a pleasure it doesn't even come close to, to covering it. And and it's boggling to me that somebody I've admired as much as I have has been a uh, an arbiter of making me feel better about my own work. Is that coherent at all? Yes, absolutely. Uh, he's he's just it's been a joy. I mean, my association with Sal is going to. I'm I'm very confident. I hope to still have a long, varied career, but uh, this is certainly these are the good old days. This is one of the high points of it, having having collaborated with Sal and become friends with him. Even more so, becoming friends with him. Speaking of high points, uh, Ron, it's been awesome having you on the show again, uh, and and a real pleasure. So uh, I wanted to personally thank you again for coming on well it's it's really is truly my pleasure dan i have enjoyed meeting you guys i i enjoy reading the uh the chasing amazing blog mark and uh i you know you you guys are the the best of what's going out there is uh going on out there as far as fandom and stuff i mean it, it gets really strident sometimes and ridiculous sometimes and I mean, it gets to the point where you know how ridiculous is it that the creative people resent the fans? That's pretty ludicrous, on the face. <laughs> but you know, sometimes the behavior on both sides can be a little questionable, and uh, so it's always a true pleasure to meet intelligent, well-spoken guys like you two who love the form and and and. and enjoy the medium and uh, you represent it as well as you do. So I thank you. Well, if you could see me through this podcast, I'd be blushing. (laughs) (laughs) I just have a big goofy grin on my face. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope you guys keep on keeping on. And, uh, you know, anytime I can help out, uh, I, it is truly, truly, truly my pleasure. Well, thanks again, Ron. And I can't wait to see your new logo. Oh, well, maybe more on that later. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. All right. Well, thanks again to Kevin Shinnick and Ron Friends who who, uh, gave us their time for these, I think, really great interviews. I really enjoyed talking to them about these recent issues. And, of course... You know, obviously with Ron, it always goes back to other things as well, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Ron tends to kind of get in his, like, old reminiscent mode. But we love it. You know, yeah. it's nice to kind of see, you know, the changing face of comics and and, and what people, like, you know, treasure about them. And, um, you know, I think we can kind of balance it out with some old and new and, you know, and, and, and really face what the comic industry, how it's changed and things like that. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks, Ron. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, we, ho- we hope you enjoyed the experience as much as we did interviewing you. Yeah. Well, guys, if you want to hear more interviews or more of our shows of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk or the old Superior Spider Talk podcast, you can go to all of our archives at superiorspidertalk.com. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please leave a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing, and we'll read it on the air. And for those of you in the Stitcher universe, please make sure you do so as well. If you have any opinions on these comics or any questions, email them to us at amazingspidertalk at gmail.com, and we'll address and read them on the air. 
Yeah, and also be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages at facebook.com slash superior spider talk and facebook.com slash chasing amazing. These both are great places to keep up with Dan and I between shows as we often put up our new articles and other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe. Not to mention it's a good way just to get in touch with us and chat and say hi and like our post and be part of a community. Yeah, it's a really fun community, I think. We get all kinds of goofy images from the fans uh, that we're going to actually reveal on our next show. Uh, so get ready for that. Get ready, get ready. Also, uh, as, as we've uh, unveiled in our inaugural episode, don't forget to check out our friendly neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club that helps support our show and gives you guys some really cool content and a chance to win some free comics. Yeah, of course. So, Mark, where can we find more of you on the Internet? Yes, well, you can find me, of course, at www.chasingamazingblog.com. You can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Uh, you can find my uh, top ten lists about comics and comic book-related films at whatculture.com. And you can find my semi-regular column, Gimmick or Good, about 90s comic books at Comics Should Be Good. Mark, I think you've edged me out here in terms of online content now. Ah, bah. Let's it's a, see. It's a back and forth thing. Let's see. So you can find me on Twitter at, at @dangavosden or go to my personal webpage dangavosden.com. You can read my movie reviews at grindmyreels.com uh, and you can follow me on Twitter all my Spider-Man stuff at sup spider talk uh, and you can go to my Spider-Man website at superiorspidertalk.com. Yeah, so you have two Twitter handles and a personal website, so you already got me beat there. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think <laughs> I think a personal website is like it's it's like a like a seven if you're playing war. You know, it beats some cards, but not many. Okay, I understand. I understand. Uh, well, well, Dan. Uh, before we go, let me just leave everybody with a little bit of sage advice from from our good old Uncle Ben. Uh, with great podcasts, must also come amazing spider talk. <laughs>